God told Jonah, go to Nineveh and tell the people to stop what they were doing. Go to Nineveh! But he didn't want to go. He rode away in a ship away from God. He went to Tarzan. There's a big storm. The waves started getting huge. Uh-oh. Everyone was scared, so the captain asked Jonah to do something. He was just fast asleep. He said that God had punished him. Throw me overboard. I'm the one who's causing all this trouble. So they threw him overboard, and then a big fish scooped him up in the stomach. Someone got swallowed over a big fish. of the Peachtree children who are going to help us to retell the story of Jonah as we go through this series. If you will, go ahead and reach in your Bibles now and turn with me to Jonah chapter 1. We're going to get to the Scripture in a minute. What we did last week in kicking things off was setting the stage for Jonah, and in doing so, one of the things we discovered that one of the benefits of a story like Jonah is that it takes concepts that are often abstract or theoretical, and it makes them really concrete for us. So we notice that like words like sin and grace come more alive to us because we get to see them in the context of a story. So sin is running away from God, and grace is the fact that God chases us. And we believe that Jonah is a story of grace, but it also you know, presumes that you have a certain understanding of God, that God chasing after you is a good thing. I mean, maybe you can relate to this guy that's up on the screen here. Maybe when you think of the concept of the fact that God runs after you, that maybe you don't immediately think that that's all that positive, that that's good news. Or maybe you can relate to this image up on the screen here. Maybe you feel like the fact that God's chasing you is some glorified manhunt by the authorities or something along those lines. Well, what we believe is, is, is that God chasing us is grace, and so let me do a little thought experiment with you to help you to understand this. So let's assume, I mean, I know that this would never happen for the good people of Peachtree Presbyterian Church, but let's assume that you're driving and that you're driving a few miles an hour over the speed limit. And let's assume that you see in your rearview mirror the red glow of a cop car behind you to pull you over. And let's assume that that cop comes over and gives you a ticket. That would be justice. You were getting what you deserve. Now, let's say in that same situation, you're speeding, you get pulled over, the cop comes over to your window, and he doesn't give you a ticket, but instead he gives you a warning. That's mercy. Now, let's assume same situation. You're speeding. You get pulled over, caught behind you. He comes over to the window. You roll down your window, and instead of giving you a ticket or instead of giving you a warning that the cop gives you a donut, that's grace. (laughs) Mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve. Grace is when you do get what you don't deserve. Can I have an amen? The reason that this is so important is that this notion of grace, us getting what we don't deserve, that God is chasing after us, and that's a good thing. And so I love how Kyle Eidelman puts it. He says, the worst thing that could happen is that you spend your life trying to outrun God because he thinks he's chasing you to collect what you owe, when he's really chasing you to give you what you could never afford. 
God is pursuing you and chasing you and me with the relentless pursuit of his overboard kind of grace and love. And so we're going to see that in today's story. We're going to start reading in the fourth verse. Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck where he laid down, fell into a deep sleep, something that many of you, because of daylight savings time, are doing right now. (laughs) The captain went to him and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. And so they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? Where did you go to college? Georgia Tech or Georgia? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. And the sea was getting rougher and rougher, and so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. And then they cried out to the Lord, please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man, for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. And then they took Jonah and they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this, the men greatly feared the Lord. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. May God not only bless the hearing, but the receiving and the enacting and the putting into practice of His holy word. So let's summarize where we are in this point of the story, staying with our Dr. Seuss, John Ortberg summary. He says, God says, go. Jonah says, no. God says, blow. Jonah says, so. The captain says, bro. Jonah says, throw. And the sailors say, whoa. So they toss Jonah in and he sank very low. But God had other places for Jonah to go. This kind of lets us know where we are at this point in the story. Now, last week, we learned a critical detail that the only person who is named in the entire story of Jonah is Jonah himself, and that Jonah in Hebrew does not mean whale, like we might assume in kind of name association. It means dove, that drawing on Hebrew history like the ark where they sent the dove out as an instrument of redemption and mission and peace out into the world that Jonah sent out, and yet he goes the wrong direction. We even put a map up last week showing that literally Jonah's going in the opposite direction from where he's supposed to go. 
What we didn't talk about last week was that on the coordinates of where Jonah is supposed to go, he is not only going in the opposite direction of east-west, in the vertical dimension, he is also heading down, 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 down. Did you notice this trend as we read it in the story? Then in verse 3, uh, he went down to Joppa. And then in verse 3, he goes down into the ship. And then verse 5, he goes down below the deck. And then verse 15, he goes down into the sea. And then in verse 17, he goes down into the belly of the fish. In other words, the natural outpouring and consequence of our sin is that we are on this crash and burn trajectory. In other words, when we run away from God, we're not only going in the wrong direction, we are on our way down and we are going to crash. And yet God's design and desire is that he wants to rescue us from this destruction and that he will use any means necessary in order to reclaim us and to rescue us. So how did God reach Jonah on this crash and burn trajectory and how does he rescue us in the midst of our running away from him? He does it in three ways. He does it through unlikely places, he does it through unlikely people, and he does it through an unlikely plan. Unlikely places of the storm, an unlikely people and the sailors, and an unlikely plan in the sacrifice. So first we're going to talk about the unlikely places that God meets us. And I want to begin by having you turn with somebody next to you. I want you to interact in this moment. I don't want you to overthink this, just gut reaction. And I want to put this question up on the screen. When have you felt closest to God? Turn to somebody next to you and answer the question, when have you felt closest to God? Ready, set, go. Well, I've had the privilege of asking this question to a lot of people who come to my office for counseling or wisdom and advice, and I've had opportunities to ask this question in classrooms. I've also had opportunities uh, to ask this question in worship experiences, and it's backed up by the social scientists. You know how sometimes the research says four out of five dentists approve this particular form of chewing gum? My experience is that roughly 80% or four out of five people give a very similar answer to this question of when have you felt closest to God, that roughly 80% of people will tell you something like, it was the moment that I went through cancer, or it was the moment when a loved one in my family died, or it was in a moment when I felt betrayed by a friend. Then in those moments when you in your own life are going through the tumult of a storm, when your life gets shaken up and you don't even know what is up and down anymore, that it's in those particular kinds of moments that we come to a greater recognition of God in our lives. We know that there are only two things that pierce the human soul, and that's either beauty or it's affliction, awe or need. And it's in the most moments of need where we often turn to God and look to Him in order to be able to help us. Dallas Willard goes as far as to say, is to say, I can give you God's address. He is always found dangling at the end of your rope. And so when you and I get to those end of your rope kind of moments, 
That's where God is often found for us. You probably know from even just a basic knowledge of history that the early church was filled with great danger and peril, that in the times of the early church, there were a great periods of persecution and struggle, and that they couldn't worship in beautiful sanctuaries or rooms and the freedom that we enjoy in America today. They had to worship in secret, and so Christians often worshiped in places called catacombs, which is basically just a fancy term for a place where people are buried or prepared for burial, a place where no one would spend any time so they could gather in secret in order to be able to sing and to pray together. The earliest Christian art that we have is not the stained glass of majestic medieval cathedrals or you know intricate, beautiful mosaics. No, the earliest Christian art that we have are basic etchings and drawings on the walls of these catacombs. And when these early Christians, in the midst of their despair and in the midst of the weight of what they were dealing with, were drawn drawing and drawing from the Old Testament and understanding what had just happened in Christ Jesus, they didn't look to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob and to Moses and Elijah. Do you know the most common piece of art that we have from the catacombs is like this art here on the screen? It's the story of Jonah. The early Christians needed to know that God would meet them in the moments of the storm that God would encounter them when the waves and the depths of their life were threatening to overtake them. And maybe right now in your own life, you are going through your own storm and you feel like the winds are about to overwhelm you. I'm here to tell you that God can meet you in that storm, that God often shows up in those moments when we desperately need Him to be there. And one of the most amazing things that uh, I discovered in this text, and I know this is a little Bible geeky, but I'm a preacher and I get into this kind of stuff, so bear with me. I think you'll really like this. I don't know if you noticed this when we read the story that it's like a crescendo. It starts smaller and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the story. And that one of the key words of the book of Jonah is the word great. It'll talk about the great city of Nineveh, and then it talks about the great waves, and then it talks about the the great wind and the great tempest, and that the storm gets greater and greater and greater, and then finally it culminates in that there's this great big fish that swallows up Jonah. So it's like great, 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 and it just gets bigger and bigger. But it also corresponds with another key word in the text, and let's put this image up on the screen, that at the beginning in verses 4 and 5, there's a certain amount of storm, and there's a corresponding amount of fear. And then verses 10 and 11, there's an even greater storm, and that even corresponds with a greater level of fear. And then in verses 15 and 16, there's no storm. And that, the text says, is the greatest fear of all. That in that moment when they toss Jonah overboard and everything gets perfectly still, that's the moment that they're really afraid. It's a different kind of fear. It's called the fear of the Lord. And it's a fear that's greater than in your circumstance because if you fear God, you will fear nothing else. But if you do not fear God, you will fear everything else. And in that moment, they encounter the living God 
And like it says in the Psalms, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be what? It's up on the screen. Feared. I sometimes give you a little hint at what is to come. Think of this. The greatest fear of all is the awe that comes from the fear of God's relentless pursuit and grace. Have you encountered that kind of fear? Or are you still fearful of the storm? God will meet you in that unlikely place of the storm. But secondly, God also reaches us through unlikely people like the sailors. Do not miss the irony of this story that Jonah doesn't like uh, non-Jews. He doesn't like the pagans in Nineveh. So in order to get away from pagans, he yokes himself to pagan sailors in order to go to another pagan city of Tarshish. And in doing so, God appoints not just the storm, but the sailors in order to confront Jonah. God uses outsiders in order to bring this religious professional and prophet to both his senses and his knees. And so God's going to reach Jonah through these unlikely people, the sailors, and he does so. Did you notice how the text kind of, you know, kind of unfolded like it was like an inquisition, that there were a series of questions that kept unfolding? It was like an interview um, for the nightly news. But the first question, and I think these are questions that aren't really questions. Sometimes this come up in marriage for me. Sometimes you ask questions that are really accusations. They're not really questions. So the first question, accusation, um, is how can you sleep? How can you sleep in a moment like this? The storm's raging all around. Jonah, how can you sleep? Jonah is so depressed. He's the patron saint of those who are in such despair. He's just tuned out. He's divorced from reality. He's disconnected from what's going on. And they're like shaking him. How can you sleep in a moment like this? I heard that with our children being really young all the time when they would scream in the middle of the night. My wife was shaking me. How can you sleep in a moment like this? I didn't know what she was saying was biblical. But I actually think that this is a question that still the pagan outside world is still asking the church. With all the storms of disease, hunger, famine, brokenness, poverty in the world, I think the outside world looks at the church and says rightfully, church, how can you be sleeping at a moment like this? And I think the second question that the sailors ask to wake Jonah up, to bring him to his knees and his senses, is they ask him, what have you done? Now, the pagan sailors would have no idea what, how important this question was to Israel. Genesis chapter 3, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, God turns to Adam and Eve after they've eaten of the forbidden fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. God says, what have you done? Genesis chapter 4, in the confrontation after the murder of Cain and Abel, what have you done? It's the Old Testament question that repeats over and over again. What have you done? What have you done? What happens in this moment is that the sailors are calling Jonah back to repentance. 
God is using pagans to bring the believer back to a place of owning his stuff. Here's why this is important. This is important is that grace will just remain a concept to you. Grace will remain distant to you until you and I can come to terms with the fact that the fault line of brokenness and sinfulness is not just out there, it's in here. And that you and I are a part of the problem. And until you can come to terms with the fact that the sin lies within you, You will feel no need for grace and you will not experience grace because you will constantly keep grace at arm's length. And so God uses these sailors to bring Jonah back to his heart by confronting him. What have you done? Unlikely places, unlikely people, and finally, this unlikely plan God will use any means necessary to bring Jonah and us back to himself. And in verse 12, that's the key verse, if you have your own Bible, to underline. In verse 12, Jonah comes back to his senses and for the first time in the story thinks of someone besides himself. He realizes that they're in danger because of him And he's willing to offer his life so that they might be saved. A couple of years ago, one of our daughters was in the fourth grade. We lived in California, and I grew up in the great state of Texas. I knew a lot about Texas history. I can tell you all about the Battle of San Jacinto and the Battle of the Alamo and the history in Texas. I know absolutely squadoosh about California history. And so there was an opportunity for parents to sign up with kids to go on a fourth grade field trip from Southern California to Northern California to go to the capital, to go to gold rush country, and to learn about the history of the state. So I sign up for this, and this trip was amazing. You haven't lived till you've hung out with like 150 fourth graders um, on, on a history trip and gone to the Jelly Belly Factory and other good things like that and uh, panned for gold in freezing cold water, those good things. And uh, while we're on this trip, I mean, I am absolutely soaking it up. Uh, daughter's getting really mad at me. She's like, stop texting on your phone. I'm like, I'm not texting. I'm taking sermon notes. This is pure gold. I'm loving this stuff. So embarrassing. And, you know, the, you know, the tour guide would ask if there were any questions. None of the kids would dare say a word because they want to move on and they want to get to dinner. My hand goes boom, straight up, because I got some more clarifying questions, and I'm totally embarrassing my kid, and, and, and I'm just, I'm loving the history, learning it. And one of the places that we went, and one of the bits of history that I encountered just literally blew my mind, and it came from San Francisco. I want to show you an image of the skyline that many of you might be familiar with. This is known as the Coit Tower, and it comes from a woman by the name of Lily Hitchcock Coit, who was a very odd and eccentric person. She was born sometime in the 1800s, and she lived to a ripe old age, and she died in 1929, and she bucked every convention of her day. She wouldn't wear a dress. She would only wear pants. Uh, she often, as you see here, would dress in all black. She loved to wear a, um, like a fire hat, even to like formal events. I mean, this, she was a really odd duck. 
And uh, yet she was enormously wealthy, and she was the one who commissioned and had also built and donated uh, the Coit Tower in the city. And you might be like, man, this woman's really weird, but you would be right, as well as you would need to know her backstory. Here's an image of it when she was a little girl. Um, when she was eight years old, her family moved to the city of San Francisco, and somewhere when she was nine years old, um, her house was in a terrible uh, and tragic fire, and she was rescued from the fire from a firefighter. And uh, when she grew up and she would hear the bells of another place that needed a fire, starting at about the age of 15, whenever she heard it, she would make a beeline and she would show up at wherever the fire was and offer any kind of volunteer assistance that she could. She became known as kind of the, the mother of the San Francisco Fire Department. She had commissioned this statue, uh, which is somewhat of her own story, because you can imagine here that you see that there's uh, someone there who's been rescued, a woman that's been rescued from a fire. And so the tour guide is describing this woman's life and how she was rescued and how she dedicated the rest of her life as a volunteer and as a donor and Every day she woke up with a passion for helping and do whatever she could to make sure that others could be rescued. And then we're driving away from the city and you're looking back at the Coit Tower and he kind of, as a little aside, says, oh, and as you look at the Coit Tower, notice its architectural design. It was designed to look like the end of a fire hose. And my mind went... No way. There is a symbol of rescue that towers over the city of San Francisco and nobody knows it. That wouldn't happen in the great city of Atlanta, would it? Tall crosses all over this city symbols of rescue, and we don't even know it? Here's the deal. God will use any means necessary to be able to go to the depths, to be able to rescue you. And like the whale in Jonah's story, what appears to be an instrument of destruction actually turns out to be the means of rescue. And that we as followers of Jesus know that the cross was meant to be an instrument of torture. It was meant to be an instrument of murder. It was meant to be an instrument of death. And yet it is the means by which God will rescue us that God will claim us and pursue us and chase us, not because he wants us to pay what we owe, but because he wants to give what we can't afford. And so listen to the questions of the non-believers as they ask you, uh, why can't, why are you sleeping in a moment like this and what have you done? 
and be confronted with the reality that we, we in the church are people who need grace just as much as anybody else does. And until we can come to terms with that, we will keep grace at arm's length. And we will miss that God is not pursuing you to harm you, but that God pursues you to save you. Let's pray. Our loving God and Father, thank you for going way overboard in your pursuit for us. Thank you for being willing to stoop so low that God, as we're on our crash and burn trajectory down into the depths, you rescue us and lift us up. And like the sailors in the story, God, who may be far from you, we thank you, God, that you work not just because of us, but in spite of us. And that we, like the sailors, will come to learn to give you praise. And so bless us, God. And for anyone here who's been keeping you at arm's length because they're afraid of who you are in the storm, help them to know that with you there is forgiveness and the greatest fear of all being in awe of your grace. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.